Morning Village Church. Um, wow. <laughs> it's good to be with you. My name is JT. I am one of the pastors here. And um, in about two weeks, I start my uh, real job as a high school teacher and a coach. And being that it's the first Sunday of the month, our family Sunday service, the youth are with us. There's a lot in here. All right, yeah. These are my people. And because of my job, I do speak fluent teenager. So let me demonstrate. Um, some of you have too much cheddar. Uh, your shoes, your shoes are drip. The worship band was fire. They slapped. The barbecue is going to be lit. No cap, bet. All right. Now, when I teach and coach freshmen, the first thing I notice is this contrast between especially the boys and the girls. The girls tend to be more mature in their emotions, their maturity overall, and definitely their height. The boys, on the other hand, they're all over the place. Some hit puberty in third grade. They learn to grow a mustache over the summer. Their voice is a new octave, and they even have tattoos. Yes, freshmen do have tattoos sometimes. While others look like they can't even ride every ride in Knott's Berry Farm. Now, there's another contrast, and that's in the confidence of those freshman boys. The majority of them, they, be, they believe that they're God's gift to humanity. And at some point in eighth grade, they seem to have convinced themselves they have earned their own self-appointed validation and approval. This inflated view of self gives them a sense of those that around them owe them something. In fact, some believe that I, as their teacher on even day one, am lucky to be teaching them. Now, this does give me the distinct pleasure of teaching them humility right away. <laughs> Yet, the way they think about themselves changes the way that they treat others. It's more common to see bullying as a freshman than you do as a senior. And every once in a while, I get a student that just kind of sees things clearly. They understand that puberty is going to hit them a little later, and they're humble. And this is a stark contrast to the overconfident students around them. Today's passage that Tommy just read, uh, read so elegantly, today's passage and parable is all about contrast. And this kind of contrast, what it looks like, because we've been talking about prayer this summer in our Prayers of the Bible series. This morning, Jesus is a parable on prayer, humility, and ultimate justification. And we're going to see this by contrasting two different types of people. So let's look at verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted, or confident, in themselves that they were righteous, and they treated others with contempt. So Luke gives us a commentary before he even writes Jesus' words. The audience is most likely religious Pharisees, and they have an unrealistic view of their own self-worth. These people are falsely confident in their own righteousness. They believe that they are, even more than my freshman students, God's gift to humanity. And in their minds, they have earned this righteousness on their own, with their own standards. And they look down on others who have not done the same. They are probably morality bullies. And it says that they treated others with contempt. Contempt is a sense of like disrespect or indifference and even hatred could be towards another person. These people are pleased with themselves based on what they've done. And they believe God is pleased with them based on what they've done. But they're not pleased with others who haven't done things as well as they have. 
And they don't believe God is pleased with them either. Now we know this feeling. So I'm going to hit home for a second. Have you ever been gracious to someone? And then you start looking around at people that are not as gracious as you. Or maybe you have four Compassion International students that you support, but that guy only has one. Shout out Abram. You sign up for the men's and women's Bible study, then you start to think differently about, oh, those that have not. You raised your kids and they're really well behaved. Then you start looking and judging other people who have kids that aren't so well behaved. You ever notice how easy it is to recognize your own sin in other people? Like game literally recognizes game. And lastly, human beings are experts at just one thing, and that's justifying their own sin. There's always a reason, right? The people who Jesus is talking to needed to hear this because they have elevated the view of themselves and they det- this determined the way they treated others. They treated others with contempt because they were confident that they were righteous. So let's be real. The way that I view myself determines the way that I treat people. The way that I view myself determines the way that I treat people. That's racism. That's ageism. That's sexism. That's all the isms, whatever one you want to choose from. And many of these people have actually heard many of these lessons Jesus has already taught. This passage comes after the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 6. Chapter 14 has the parable of the wedding feast and the parable of the great banquet. Chapter 16 has the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Jesus is doubling down and teaching again with patience and humility about our relationship with God using contrast. And chapter now, 18, is no different. Now, to be confident in your own righteousness, that's a wild thing. Culturally, they probably weren't the only ones that thought they believed in this this confidence. I mean, those that saw the religious good works and how these people followed the law, they would have thought of them as righteous. I mean, if they weren't the righteous ones, then who was? Now, this view is telling God, look, look at what I'm done. Look what I'm doing. You and I, God, same. In fact, God, you're welcome. If you approach and have an audience with the only true living God about how great you are, this will lead to contempt. I mean, how could it not? You made yourself so great. Now God, in a sense, owes you. God is in debt to you. This is where it leads. Look how great I've become. Look at all the things you've given me the power to accomplish. It makes sense to continue to use me because of the greatness that I possess. Now, Luke tells us that Jesus was not talking about them. He was talking to them. And in this parable, Jesus is talking to us as well. Many of us fool ourselves into believing we're doing good enough. Good enough to feel safe. Good enough to be correct, to be justified, confident in our own righteousness. So let's go to verse 10. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The contrast between these two dudes is easily identifiable. We have just two types of people. We have the Pharisee and we have a tax collector. The Pharisees were the most religious. The tax collectors were the least religious. The Pharisees were the most publicly moral. The tax collectors were the least publicly moral. The Pharisees were the most spiritually confident. The tax collectors were the least spiritually confident. The Pharisees were the least socially compromising, whereas the tax collectors were the most socially compromising. The tax collector is a collaborator. 
To put it in perspective, the Nazis had collaborators who sold out their own people. Now the tax collectors were seen at this level, they're traitors. So Jesus starts this parable, these two characters, but here's what's interesting. They're at an equal place at the beginning. They're at the bottom of the hill. The temple is on the top of the hill. That's where we have to go to pray. So regardless of who you are, they, these two individuals must climb the hill, feel the same calf burn, feel the same heart rate that goes up. They have to both walk up and reach the temple to pray. They're equal level right now. But once there, we see in verse 11 and 12, the Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, and even like this tax collector, I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all I get. Verse 11 gives us everything we want to know about this dude. Okay, first, he knows how to pray. He, he's, he goes up to the temple. He's standing, which is, at that time was a very common way to pray, and he's by himself. Okay, now, this might be a little controversial. He's a good dude on the surface, but like, watch. When you read the Bible, the word Pharisee pops up and you immediately think, bad guy. This is often in the Bible who Jesus has the most beef with because of their hypocrisy. Jesus really has some issues with the religious people of the day. But this dude is praying and thanking God that he's not someone that steals money. He works hard. He doesn't cheat on his wife. He stands out from the cultural evil of the day. He isn't a collaborator with evil, morally, or spiritually corrupt. He goes above and beyond. He fasts twice a week, which is more than they needed to do. And he gives very generously financially. This is a good dude. You would hang out with him. He might be outside having a barbecue with you right after this. You would want your kids to hang out with someone that had such a good influence on them, right? I would. Yet in reality, this isn't such a good dude. In two sentences, he uses the word I five times. The, the five I statements reveal self like egocentricity. Have you ever talked to someone that talked about themselves the whole time? It's exhausting to listen to people like that. And this is what the guy is doing. He's bragging to God of himself. So some translations even say he was speaking to himself. Some translators even say he's not even praying. He's just talking to himself in the corner. Luke 14, 11, Jesus says, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. That's convicting. Watch how you pray and watch how many eyes you use. There's no better way to get to know someone than listening to their prayers. So we hear his prayer, but what does he not say? God, I thank you that this is a, this is where you typically hear someone talk about the things that God has done, but nope. He brags to God about who he is, his own moral purity. This guy sees that he is dope and his attribute, and he attributes that dopeness to God. And what's crazy is he's right. God gave him the ability to be and do those things. But the problem is, is that he stakes his soul on it and he gives him, this gives him cause for pride. This is the opposite about how we should respond to the, God's work in his life. In 1 Corinthians 4, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? 
I thank God for not making me do bad. Thank you for making me dope. I'm God's gift. I once heard a comedian and he's like, why would I give you props for things you aren't supposed to do? I haven't stolen. You're not supposed to steal. I haven't cheated on my wife. You're not supposed to cheat on your spouse. I haven't hurt anybody for profit. You aren't supposed to do that. Yesterday, one of my sons was looking at me and he wanted me to be proud of him. And he goes, dad, today, I didn't argue with you. I'm like, good job. <laughs> okay, it doesn't matter. The world, non-believers, believers alike, we get this. The Pharisee knew about God. He knew about grace. He knew about righteousness, but he missed it. He did not understand that justification by faith alone on the basis of the Redeemer alone. I was always struck that when you go to a men's or women's retreat or men's advance, and you get that spirit, that little sheet that says, let's figure out your spiritual gifts. Is anybody ever perplexed why humility is on that list? It's like a Christian trap. Can you imagine taking that, that entire spreadsheet, you fill it out as best you can. You really want to know what, your, what it is and your spiritual gifts are. And you, there's numbers and ranges based on your personality. And you fill it out and you add up the numbers. And your final answer is your spiritual gift is humility. And then your friend looks over and goes, nice. I too am extraordinarily humble. <laughs> the Pharisee is drowning and he doesn't know he's wet. Pastor John Piper in this passage said of this, there are three things we need to see about this person who, quote, trusts in himself that he's righteous. First, his righteousness is moral, culturally, cultural, and worldly. Like being morally upright, he's doing the right things. Second, his righteousness is religious and ceremonial. He fasts, he ties, he's hitting all those spiritual disciplines he's supposed to. And third, he gives his righteousness is a gift from God. It's from God. He gives God the credit for making him upright and devout like he is. The Pharisee giving over to self-conceit, wrapped up in himself, seeing only his own self-righteous deeds. He catalogs his virtues before God, despising the poor tax collector who stands far off. God, I thank you I'm not like other men, like this tax collector. There it is. That's the contempt Remember, Jesus is telling this to people who are like this. He exalts himself and gives him over to self-praise. This is what Jesus is attacking here. He's rooting out this spiritually corrupt, this pride. Pastor Matt Bowman this week told me of a great irony here. He's thanking God for not being like the tax collector. He's right, but he's thanking God for what he despises. He should be wishing he's like that tax collector. Philippians 2, 3 through 4, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but also, also the interests of others. Jesus then gives us this contrast to the Pharisee's prayer. And we know it's a contrast because we get this word, but, verse 13, but the tax collector standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So a tax collector, the collaborator, he's full of shame. He knows who he is. He's not confused with that. And he's right. He sucks. This is not a guy you would hang out with. 
My one and only daughter is not allowed to bring home a dude like this to meet me. He can't even bring his eyes up because he feels so much shame. It reminds me of Psalm 121. I lift my eyes up to the hills from where does my help, my help come. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He can't even do this. And those resonates with me. I've been there. When I can't even look to God because of the shame I feel. He's standing far away. He's, bre- he's beating his chest as a sign of sorrow. There's nothing to trust in himself. He recognizes this. He's honest with himself. And this drives him to the only hope he has. He must put his trust solely and only in God. And he gives us a very short prayer. God, which is his only hope, be merciful to me. A cry to help from the only person that's able to give him sustainable mercy. And this is interesting. He goes, a sinner. But like this actually translates not a, but the. He's not part of the group. He is the group. He's the chief of all sinners. This echoes Paul in 1 Timothy 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. He didn't justify anything. He didn't say, God, be merciful to me. I'm not a Pharisee. He didn't say, God, be merciful to me, a repentant sinner. He didn't say, God, be merciful to me, a praying sinner. He didn't say, God, be merciful to me. I'm only human. And he didn't say, God, be merciful to me. I'll just try to do better. He simply prayed, praying boldly, soul and spirit, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Like David in Psalm 51, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. We can respect this authority or its accountability. There's a self-humility there. Have you ever entered a season of consistent prayer? Hopefully, or even maybe from this summer series. And if you have, you notice that the more you pray, the more consistent you are in that prayer, the more you be, begin to see that in yourself, there's a bigger and greater need for the gospel you ever thought possible. You start to confess things that were not even on your radar before. And as you pray, you become more aware of your sinfulness and your need for mercy. The world recognizes how helpless we are. We can't change things. There's a problem. We need help. And the only help, the one that actually promises and fulfills that promise is Jesus. He is the only answer. Thank God in heaven for Jesus and the mercy he freely gives. Amen. Jesus lived the life we couldn't. He died the death we should have. Jesus gives us the justification we're desperate for. And as teenagers would say, Jesus is him. That joke landed with them real well. So So how does Jesus conclude this short parable? In verse 14, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exhausted, exhausted, exalted, rather. I'm exhausted. (laughs) Pastor John Piper said this, so many people today who are turning away from the doctrine of justification by faith alone on the basis of Christ alone. What Jesus wants us to see here is that how righteous you are, 
or how moral you are or how religious you are, whether God has produced that in you or you produced that in yourself, that is not the basis for your justification before God. That is not how you are accepted and declared righteous in God's law court. We are not justified by the righteousness that Christ works in us. We are righteous that Christ is for us. He's your righteousness. Look to Christ alone, trust in Christ alone, not our own false definition of righteousness. In college, I took a number of philosophy classes, not on purpose. And after each class, we would go to Starbucks and we talked to the professor. I had no clue what the professor was talking about, but I got real good at faking it. It sounded like I had a clue. I had no clue. So Jesus gives this parable, and I'm sure people went away to ancient Roman Starbucks, and they got a very expensive vente orange mocha frappa stupid, whatever. And they said, why did he use the word rather? One of the most important words in this whole passage is rather, because it means that one of these men went home justified, and it shows the extent of this contrast. The parable would have been incredibly shocking to the audience hearing it for the first time. It's a complete reversal of the cultural norms. I can almost see the audience agreeing with him as he spoke, and then Jesus at the very end doing a complete 180 on them. Here's the contrast. The Pharisee was proving to God his justification. There's no humility. The tax collector, dependent on God's Mercy is just at a prayer dripping in humility because he saw how broken he was. This brokenness revealed the desperate need of God's gift of righteousness and as a result is pronounced justified. So now we got to bridge the gap between justification and humility. It's a very humbling thing to admit that there's nothing you can do to justify yourself before God but can only be justified by what Jesus has done for you. It's a very humbling thing to admit that and know that not even the best things that you have done in your life can justify you before God. This is what Jesus said earlier in his ministry, Matthew 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This tax collector, this guy was poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The tax collector mourned by beating his chest. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. This tax collector saw his weakness and need for the mercy. But God puts a price on humility of heart. Pride, self-esteem, self-praise effectively shut the door to prayer. Humility flourishes in the soil of a true and deep sense of our sinfulness and nothingness. Humility is an indispensable requisite of true prayer. It must be an attribute, a characteristic of prayer. Prayer has no beginning, no ending, no being without humility. And as a ship is made for the sea, so prayer is made for humility, and so humility is made for prayer. That's the reason why our church adopted humility as one of our core values. I I once heard someone say, hey, just got to be good enough. Humility and justification is not a sliding scale. Much like I don't have to be fast when I encounter a bear, I just have to be faster than my friend. Humility isn't looking at someone and saying, I just need to be a little more humble than them, and then I'm good. Without Christ, 
none of us are safe. There's no Christ without humility. There's no praying without humility. To be humble is to have a low estimate of oneself, is to be modest and lowly, a disposition to seek obscurity. So teenagers, I'm going to be in your neighborhood for just one second, and this is the one that's going to hurt. Humility retires itself from the public gaze. TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, other social media, whatever. When's the last time you didn't share something? You know the saying, I think, therefore I am? I think it's more I, the sh- I share, therefore I am, right? True humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Look what our reformed Pharisee Paul said in Ephesians 4. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And then we get a disciple of Jesus. Peter says this in 1 Peter 5, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. I once heard this question. Am I a good person that does bad things? Or am I a bad person who struggles to do good things? The truth is, the Bible says, we're not good. There's no amount of good things we can do in this life to be good enough. So therefore, we're desperate for justification. We can never do this on our own. We simply are not able because of our sin. That sin that you're born with. So we have no alternative than humility. We are in need of humility that only Jesus gives. Only through him we are justified before a perfect and one true God. So this brings us to the good news statement. Hopefully the statement you remember the rest of this week. We are justified through faith in Jesus. So then we can cry out to our Father in heaven through Jesus. And like the high schoolers like to say, and it's only ever been true in this one instance, Jesus is him. All right, so as we close... Our worship team will lead us in worship. I'm sure it will slap. And after which, Pastor Matt's going to come up and he's going to lead us through communion while the other pastors walk down and then we're going to give you, so you can stay in your seats, we will give you the elements. But for now, please bow your heads, close your eyes, take a deep breath. Put your heart in a posture of humility. I'm going to lead you through a prayer. So as you sit there, let's first thank God for the things that he's done in your life. Thank God for saving you from yourself.
thank God for Jesus for what he has done. Let the world their future boast, their works of righteousness. I, a wretched undone and lost, am freely saved by grace. Other title I disclaim, this, only this, as all my plea. I, the chief of sinners, am but Jesus died for me, amen.